welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. I am still on the road this week, but sadly, I am not in Hawaii anymore. It's back to reality with a week in Utah, so it's back to winter. It was interesting, for sure, packing for this long stretch on the road, as I had to almost pack for two different trips. I'm not complaining, and I'm not asking for any empathy because I'm not going to get any. I get it. Like, oh, Tom, that must have been so rough carrying your shorts and flip-flops and your Aloha shirts and your luggage for two weeks prior to arriving in Hawaii, said no one ever. (laughs) Yes, this is the epitome of first world problems, right? It was, however, kind of weird to be in Utah two weeks ago to see my shorts and my flip-flops and likewise last week seeing my gloves and my scarf and my toque, as we say in Canada, or beanie for those... American listeners, just sitting there staring at me like, what are we doing here? Now I'm heading home on Friday for a few days before heading back out on the road to the Solution Tree PLC Summit in Phoenix, Arizona, February 1st to 3rd. Uh, So that's, you know, a short stint home, but this is my last week uh, before heading home for a few days. And I also wanted to take the time right now to let you know of a few upcoming events happening this spring. The Grading from the Inside Out two-day training is happening virtually April 5th and 12th. We're also going to do face-to-face trainings in Des Moines, Iowa, March 28th to 29th, and also in San Antonio, Texas, April 25th and 26th. Now, the Standards-Based Learning and Action two-day training will also be in San Antonio, Texas, right after the training, April 27th and 28th. So you could get four days in San Antonio, four days with yours truly, uh, during the last week of April. Two days on the mindset, two days on taking action, and four days in San Antonio is never a bad thing. All of the information for those events can be found on the Solution Tree website. I'll have links in the show notes for them as well. Okay, as always, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to those of you who've been longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Heather Lyon. Heather is the author of two books focused on student engagement, so that is exactly what our conversation focuses on today. And in Assessment Corner, I'm going to revisit an important residual effect of formative assessment, and that is the idea of becoming more instructionally efficient. So, that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Heather Lyon is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I'm going to open this week with a common refrain often heard on social media. That common refrain is, I don't know who needs to hear this. So here goes. I don't know who needs to hear this, but everyone, no matter how successful they are or how confident they may appear, everyone experiences episodes of insecurity and self-doubt. Anyone who says they don't is simply lying. Now, I'm not saying this to dismiss or dilute your feelings by saying everyone does, but it is important to remind ourselves that we are the only person with whom we have full access to what we are honestly thinking. Now, admittedly, it is super annoying when you express a feeling that is affecting you, whether it's insecurity or doubt or whatever, and the first thing someone else does is they say, oh, I feel the same way. And then they go on to tell you about their feelings, right? (laughs) It's like, hey, uh, I was trying to tell you something about me, and you just went and made it about you. And I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to empathize and show you that you're not alone, that people feel that way. But they hijack the conversation, 
Uh, when they do that, it does dilute the significance of what you were saying. Yeah, it's almost dismissive. It's like, oh, everyone feels that way. Why are you making such a big deal out of it? Even worse is when they try to one-up you. You think you have self-doubt? Let me tell you about mine. So you're, so you're thinking to yourself, yeah, sweet. I'm, I'm glad I shared this with you. That's not what I'm doing here. But what I am trying to say is that it's normal to feel that way. That there is nothing wrong with you if you experience self-doubt or insecurity about where you stand in any social situation, professional situation, or personal situation. It's completely normal. You know that colleague of yours who seems to have it all together and you constantly feel like you don't measure up? They have self-doubt and insecurity too. You know that principle, the one you admire? She walks into the room, her presence alone commands attention. It seems as if she has all of the answers and perspective on everything. She fights her own self-doubt too. You know that author, speaker, presenter gets on stage in front of 500, 1,000, 2,000 people or more and delivers this inspiring keynote presentation, I promise you. Moments before they got up there, they were wrestling with their own insecurities and potential self-doubt. Now, maybe they've learned or trained themselves to deal with it, but I promise you, in their private moments, yep, self-doubt. How do I know this? It's simple. It's called being a human being. I experience it too. And look, despite my successes, and, and I'm not trying to flex here, okay? There's a lot of people more successful than me, and I know I'm somewhere in the middle. But despite the successes I've had, you know, working with schools and school districts for almost two decades, 10 years doing it full time, I still have a little self-doubt before every workshop, every presentation, or every keynote. Whether it's, you know, imposter syndrome or comparing myself to others. And by the way, that's a great way to fuel your insecurity and self-doubt. Just keep comparing yourself to other people and just looking for ways that you don't measure up to them or whatever. That's, that's the fastest way to do this. So whether I'm doing that, there are many moments throughout every week where I fight these feelings. And for some, it's debilitating. For others, it simply nags at us internally. And I'd put myself more in the latter category than the former. So knowing that about myself and knowing it was something I had to learn to manage, I adopted a phrase that has become a sort of mantra later in life to quickly reset my mindset. And that phrase is, why not me? Now, like many, when I experience self-doubt, the internal phrases I hear are, why me? Or who are you? The peak of my insecurity, I think, and self-doubt happened when I wrote my first book, 10 Things That Matter From Assessment to Grading. And to make a long story short, I was approached to write the book. I put the proposal together. It was accepted. And then I set out to write a book and then realized I had no idea how to do that. So immediately, self-doubt came pouring back into my head, right? Who are you to think you could write a book? Like, who are you to think you have something to say? I mean, that rang through my head throughout 2009 when I began the project. But then I started shifting my mindset from why me to why not me? Now, that was also around the time I started my daily journaling habit of shifting my mindset through that daily journaling I talked about in episode 42 when I talked about the present as epilogue. I thought to myself, someone is going to write a book about assessment. Why not me? Why can't I be the one to do it? Like I can either let this insecurity and self-doubt get the best of me, or I can try to shift my thinking. So I adopted the phrase and, and mantra, why not me? 
being an author is really cool. Until you go into a bookstore, which, which we don't do a lot of anymore. Or you look online and realize how many other people have done it. Like how many thousands or millions of authors there are out there. Then you realize it's not that special. I mean, it is special because it takes a lot of work and every, not everyone does it. And most people aren't authors. But here's my point. Why? Why would I be the only one who couldn't figure out how to write a book? Of all these thousands or millions of authors that I see in bookstores and online who've all written books, am I really the only one who can't figure out how to do it? Why not me? But this wasn't the first time I adopted that phrase. The first time I actually used this phrase in my own life was way back when I was a teenager learning to drive. Now, true confession, no judgment here. I was actually quite nervous to learn how to drive. Just observing it and, and thinking about it and, and probably overthinking it, I kept thinking about how complicated it seemed and, and just kind of kept telling myself that I might not be able to figure it out. I mean, I kind of knew I would figure it out, but at the same time, I was a limit, little intimidated by the whole thing. But then I started seeing all of my classmates getting their licenses. You see, I'm a November baby. So most of the kids I went to school with turned 16 well before me. And back then, you could get your full license in about a month or two. So it's not like the gradual systems we have today. So many of my classmates not only got their learner's permits ahead of time, they got their full licenses before I was even eligible. As I saw some of my classmates getting their licenses, I thought to myself, what? Wait, if that clown can get his full license then what in the world am I worried about? If he can do it, why not me? And it completely changed my frame of mind, even as a teenager. Now, admittedly, there have been times in my life where I've lost sight of that or forgot about the why not me mantra. That's, you know, I look back on my life and there's times where I, I you know, probably could have stuck to that a little bit more because I know it helps me shift my mindset to one that is more positive and one that's more aligned with what I want. And I'm not saying that the power of positive thinking always works in bringing about exactly what you want. But what I am saying is where would you rather spend your time leading up to the thing or the event that you're focused on? I mean, obviously you need to have enough experience or the pursuit needs to be somewhat plausible. It's not like I could just say, hey, someone's going to be the next quarterback for the Tampa Bay Bucks when, when uh, Tom Brady retires, so why not me? You know, I mean, it has to be plausible, okay? That's not what I'm saying. And I think you get that. But if you take the optimistic view, why not me? You take that mindset in advance of something and it works out, then you will undoubtedly feel great. And you would have spent the last week or the weeks or the months in anticipatory frame of mind. You would have been anticipating the success and then it occurred, right? So that's, that can't never, that's never a bad thing. Now, if you take the optimistic view, why not me, you take that mindset in advance of something and it doesn't work out, and let's be honest, that happens a lot, then at least you will have not spent all of that time perseverating on why something won't work out. Like, why would you invest any mental energy into something anticipating that it isn't going to happen? I just see zero upside to being fixated on all of the reasons why something weren't, won't work out leading up to you know, that something or that event. I mean, there is, uh, you know, some performative piece to, uh, you know, pessimism and that whole idea of pessimism makes us sound smart, but I just don't get it. I, I don't get why we would spend all that time um, just fixated and marinating in the possibility of things not working out because neither one we necessarily know to be true, but which one is going to help you sort of in the present. 
So I don't know who needs to hear this, but why not you? Someone is going to be the next teacher at that school. Someone is going to be the next science teacher, fifth grade teacher, kindergarten teacher. Why not you? Someone is going to be the next department chair or grade level team leader. Why not you? Someone will be the next assistant principal or the principal of that school. Why can't it be you? Someone is going to be hired into that district position. Why not you? Someone is going to write that book. Why not you? Why can't it be you? Well, the truth is, it can. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. Here this week for the interview is Dr. Heather Lyon. Heather is a former English teacher and is now the Assistant Superintendent of Curriculum, Instruction, and Technology for the Lewiston-Porter Central School District in Western New York. Heather is also the author of two books, The first is Engagement is Not a Unicorn, It's a Narwhal, and the other is The Big Book of Engagement Strategies. So listeners, you can imagine what we're going to talk about today as Heather joins me on the podcast. So Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great. I'm I'm glad you're joining me today. Uh, Certainly Happy New Year to you. And uh, although I often say to to non-educators that uh, the Happy New Year in January is a little overrated for educators because Happy New Year professionally tends to happen in the fall. So I suppose it's Happy New Year personally in January, but Happy New Year professionally in the fall as as it goes. Um, Yeah, yeah, for sure. you know, engagement is a big topic right now. It's certainly something that I come across in, in conversations uh, frequently, and I really do uh, look forward to getting into the conversation about, you know, engagement and some of the differences between engagement and compliance. But let's start with the professional autobiography. Let's, you know, some of the highlights. I've highlighted some things in the introduction. You're an author, you're an assistant superintendent, but fill in some of the spaces for us. Help us understand your professional journey and maybe some of the pivotal moments that shaped your thinking as an educator and led you to, you know, authoring two books about student engagement. How long do we have? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's a podcast, Heather. You can take as long as you need. Right. <clears throat> um, I never really wanted to be a teacher uh, growing up. I originally wanted to be a ballerina, then I wanted to be an actress, then I wanted to be a writer. And um Back in the day when I graduated from high school, I went to uh, college to get a degree in English um, because I wanted to be a well-paid, famous author. But I knew that that was not going to happen overnight. And so I thought, how do I um, not live with my parents for the rest of my life? And so teaching was my backup plan. Um, Just like if I had wanted to be an actress, maybe I'd be would have become a waitress or something in the meantime to pay the bills. And a pivotal moment for me was when I was doing my student teaching, my first cooperating teacher in my first placement, her name is Dee Schwartz. And she was just inspirational to me. She, she made me realize that um, I really enjoyed uh, teaching very much. And uh as an English teacher, I could assign people to read the books that I wanted to talk about. So it was fantastic. And they could write about the things that I wanted to read about. And um, 
So I really enjoyed that very much. Um, but I thought very early in my career, like, I don't know if I could do this forever because um, I had to teach longer than I'd been on the planet at that point. And so if teaching was my new plan A, what was my new backup plan going to be? So administration was the backup plan. And um, I never really wanted to be a principal or certainly not an assistant principal just because um, I wasn't working for people who were educational leaders. They were more managers of a building and that didn't have any appeal to me. But um, I don't know. Ultimately, I ended up with my administrative degree and just what I realized is that I really do love teaching. And even though I do love teaching children, I love teaching adults even more than that. And so I have always enacted my job as an administrator, as a teacher of teachers. Um, it's, so. it's, a, it's about that influence, right? It's about the sphere of influence. I think that's, it's, it, and it's interesting to me how uh, so many people are influenced by the principles or assistant principles that they had. If you had someone who was an instructional leader, someone who was inspiring, someone who really brought the best out of you, then administration might seem like something that you'd want to get into. And yet if you have someone who is, I, you know, I bet I, I don't want to undersell the management stuff because it's important to be able to manage a school building as well. But that's not inspiring to others in terms of why they would get into administration. So it's interesting how our uh, our early experiences, we either try to right the wrong. I'm going to be different in administration yeah. or or you are inspired by somebody and you kind of want to replicate that. You want to be that for, for others, you know, that someone was for you and, and certainly about influence. And I, I agree with you. I think the teaching of adults and working with, as I do, working with schools and districts uh, and influencing has, has a far greater reach to students. We're a little bit more indirect, but certainly a reach to students. So let's pivot and talk now about engagement, which is clearly an area of focus for you. You've authored two books. And I am so intrigued by the title of the book. And, and admittedly, I, I haven't read the book yet. This interview kind of came together quickly. And, and certainly, I love the fact that we had a chance to talk to one another. But I haven't read the book. But from what I understand about the title, you know, I, I just am really intrigued by it. Engagement is not a unicorn. It's a narwhal. Okay, Heather, what do you mean by that? <laughs> okay, so if I were to go up to a two-year-old child and to ask them what a unicorn is, they could tell me. Um, even though a unicorn is actually not real, there's no place on earth where these uh, horned horses exist. However, narwhals are real. Um Many people don't even know what a narwhal is. So for those folks who are listening who don't know what a narwhal is, it's, uh, it's a whale, actually, that has a horn growing out of its forehead. And you've probably seen one if uh, you've watched the movie Elf, for example. Right. Um, but even if you have seen one because they've become more popular these days, you may not know what it's called, that it's called a narwhal, or that it's a real animal swimming around right now in our oceans. So what happened was I was uh, writing the book, the big book of engagement strategies. I'm sorry, no, I was writing engagement is not a unicorn, it's a narwhal. Mm -hmm. And it didn't have that title yet. Um, and the book is divided into three sections, what, so what, and now what. And so, and in the book, I explained four levels of engagement. So. Um, the what is about the four levels. So what is about why those four levels are important and 
now what are strategies to help you get someone from one level to another? And I got to the point of the highest level of engagement, which is absorption. So how to get students to be absorbed. And I hit a wall and I thought to myself, huh, I know absorption exists outside of school, but where does absorption exist in school? And so I really had to take a pause and do a lot of reflection. And ultimately, I realized, silly, duh, you know, it happens all the time, but it's, um, it's not what we think it is. So we often think of engagement as a unicorn being this mythical thing. Rather, it is not mythical, it's real, but it's unusual, it's uncommon, and it's not um, as uh, easy to spot as we may think. And so on page, um, in uh, it's not a unicorn, it's a narwhal, on page 166 in the book. Um, and you can also find this on my website because every image in both of my books are free on my website www.lions, L-Y-O-N-S, letters, L-E-T-T-E-R-S.com. So anyway, um, I, I give a side-by-side comparison of engagement as a unicorn versus engagement as a narwhal. So some of these will make you laugh here. Okay. Um, okay, so like the first one says, engagement as a unicorn is students applaud and thank the teacher for the fantastic lesson. Like if that's what we're aiming for, we're going to miss it every time. It doesn't happen. Um, But engagement as a narwhal is students feel proud of their own work and learning. That's what we should be going for. Um, uh, Engagement as a unicorn uh, parameters like standards, curriculum and assessments are determined by the teacher. Well, teachers don't determine the standards. Um, you know, they may not have say over the curriculum that they're told that they have to use. Um, they may have to give standardized tests and things like that. So that level of control is mythical. We shouldn't right. be looking at that. But uh, engagement as a, as a narwhal is the teacher and students leverage the dictated parameters. So even if the teacher has boundaries, the students have high levels of freedom. Um, so that's what we're looking for. And that's really the difference. So the title means that engagement is not mythical. It really is possible. Right. And um, we probably should have added a, a spoiler alert uh, for any listeners who are listening to the podcast in the car or somewhere around their children. Uh, unicorns are not real to adults, but uh, for children, <laughs> it's a little bit different. Heather, we have to we have to be mindful of our listening audience here. <laughs> All right. Um, now, I, I have had um, two really continuous experiences over the last few months with teachers, schools, and districts that I've worked with. And I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the first, and then I'll get your response, and then I'll, I'll go to the follow-up. And the second experience that I've had, the first is that it seems as maybe as much as ever that many are conflating this idea of compliance and engagement. Um, how do you explain the difference between the two? How do, you, how do you talk about the difference between compliance? Because I think sometimes teachers feel like if students are being compliant and doing their work, they are in, they assume they're engaged. But you and I both know those are two different things. So how do you explain the difference between those two? So let me take a step back and give you a formula. So right. here's the formula to determine what engagement is. 
So engagement equals enjoyment of the task, what you're asked to do, plus the reward for the task. That's really it boiled down. Okay. Enjoyment of the task plus the reward for doing the task. And so in, uh, in the books, I talk about the engagement continuum, which is um, that there are four levels of engagement. So from left to right, meaning the uh, lowest level of engagement on the left to the highest level on the right, you have non-compliant, compliant, interested, and absorbed. Non-compliant and compliant are both levels of disengagement because there is no enjoyment in a task that you are doing because you have to do it. And that's what compliance is. I don't want to do it, but I'm doing it anyway. So um, interested means I want to do it and I like the reward I get for doing it. Absorbed is... I want to do this and the reward comes from inside of me. Um, And so that is the highest level. I do want to caution the listeners to say that absorption is a place we visit, not a place we live, to echo um, Charlotte Danielson. And so, in other words, we shouldn't aim for absorption for every student in every classroom every day. Human beings are not wired to be absorbed in everything that they encounter. Um, but we should at least aim for uh, interest every for every student in every classroom every day, which is kids are doing work that they want to do, and they enjoy the uh, the reward that they get for doing that. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the uh, you you um, you used a word that I know will catch listeners' attention, and that is the word reward. Okay. Can you clarify what you mean by reward? You're, you're not, I I know you're not suggesting sort of something tangible, but just clarify when you say that someone is interested and they, they appreciate or enjoy the reward. What do you mean by that? So take that continuum, which is a linear line and let's bend it pole to pole. So imagine that you're seeing um, a two by two matrix or window pane. um, And so that continuum was insufficient to me because I wanted to know what would cause somebody to move or change their level of engagement. And so what are the variables that are connected to that? So that leads to the engagement matrix. So along the bottom or the horizontal axis is the task. So on the left side, you don't enjoy doing the task. And on the right side, you do enjoy doing the task. Mm -hmm. So bottom left is non-compliance, top left is compliance. Uh, top right is interested, bottom right is absorbed. So those are the sections in the matrix. Okay. Now the vertical axis is your uh, relationship with the person assigning the task or the consequence, positive or negative, that you get for doing the task. So that's the reward. So a non-compliant person, bottom left, does not want to do the task, they don't like it, and they don't care about the relationship they have with the person assigning it, and they don't care about the carrot or stick that they get for doing the task. In other words, I don't care about this, I don't care about you, and I don't care about what happens to me if I do or don't do this, right? right? Okay. So in order to shift from non-compliance to compliance, you are not making a move 
to the right, in other words, you're not enjoying the task anymore, you are shifting your relationship with either the person assigning the task or the consequence, positive or negative, that you get for doing the task. So bottom left, non-compliant, I, I don't like this task. Top left, I still don't like this task. Bottom left, I'm not doing this for free. Mm-hmm. Top left, if you pay me 50 bucks, I'll do it. Doesn't mean uh, I want to do it. But right. now you've incentivized it in such a way positively that now I'll do it. Now it could be a stick, right? So yeah. that was the carrot. The stick would be, um, I wouldn't do this for free, but you're going to find me. And so now you're going to make me pay if I don't do this. Right. I'll do it. Got it. Or it's, um, I wouldn't do this for anybody else. But grandma, you asked me to do it. I love you, grandma. I will do it for mm-hmm. you, grandma. Okay. okay. Um, so that is, that's non-compliance to compliance. Your question, though, was about compliant to engaged. And I'm going right. to say compliant to interested because okay. that's the next threshold, although it doesn't have to be a linear move. But what you've done now is you've shifted the task. I now want to do the task. And of course, you might have some folks who are rolling their eyes who are like, well, of course, changing the task might get somebody to be uh, more uh, engaged in it, but there are tasks that I can't change. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. There are. But actually, so much of the time, we have control over what we ask our students to do. And we don't allow students to have choice and voice about what it is that they're doing. And choice and voice is the easiest way to go from compliant to interested. And I'm not talking about like complicated differentiation where you have to create something different for every single child in the classroom. I am saying that the worksheet that you're passing out to the kids to do, like, why? Why do they have to do that worksheet? That's a choice you've made as the adult for the kids. Now, let's say they have to do that worksheet. I don't know why, but let's say they have to. Well, could you say, and there are 10 problems on there. Could you say to the kids, how um, you don't have to do all 10 problems. What's reasonable? And get them involved in, well, you know, what about only doing five of them? All right. Well, if you, and you could have a number in your head. It wouldn't be less than five. So if they say none, you're like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to have to choose for you. No, 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 no. Let me choose type of thing. You know, (laughs) you could turn that into something that is much more enjoyable. You can also say to kids something like do the five easiest. Mm -hmm. I mean, telling a kid to do the five easiest. Now, you might have some kid who's going to do just the first five. Well, that's fine. But the metacognitive effort that it takes to actually select which are the five easiest, that's really interesting, isn't it? And you could say, you could even ask the kids, explain why you chose those five. There's a lot of um, engagement that can be achieved from that um, without a lot of effort. But I want to say in terms of because interested is top right, that means there's some type of dynamic of an uh, extrinsic that's going on there, either the relationship or the consequence. And um, I think teachers have a really hard time with that when I talk about it with kids. So I'm going to shift to now talking about it with adults. Okay. Okay. So let me 
quickly slide to absorbed though, because absorbed tasks are the tasks we do for ourselves. There is no extrinsic that is necessary. I'm not doing it for somebody else and I'm not doing it for a positive or negative consequence. I'm doing it because I want to do it. Well, those things in our adult life are things that we pay to do, actually. They're the things we do on the weekend or during our free time. Tom, I love to cook, but nobody has ever asked, no, nobody has ever paid me to cook for them. And so they shouldn't. Like my love of it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily skilled enough that somebody should compensate me for doing that. And in fact, if I try to receive compensation for doing it, it may deflate my desire to do it because now doing it has a monetary uh, consequence. So for example, my husband loves to play basketball and, you know, pays for a membership to the Y so he can play basketball and, you know, ask me, can our kids not be born on a night when he's playing basketball? <laughs> like He loves it. Um, but he loves it more than Steph Curry loves to play basketball because Steph Curry has to pay his mortgage to pay back to play uh, by playing basketball. My husband just gets to do it because um, and he's not as good as Steph Curry because he doesn't have the time to devote to getting good. Um, although if he's listening, you're very good at playing basketball, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> nice save, Heather. <laughs> yes. But so let's take that and let's yeah. go to interested. So interested are the things we enjoy doing enough and are good enough at doing that we get paid to do it. And so I don't want to get paid for cooking because I love to cook, but I don't want the pressure of getting paid uh, because I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. I am a school administrator and I really love my work, but on Friday nights, I am ready to set that work to the side and do other things. And yeah. that's perfectly okay. And so you know you're interested if you enjoy doing that thing, but you need the um, consequence and externally in order to do it. I'm going to stop doing my administrative work if they stop paying me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. Um, so on, and on the weekends, I don't want to continue to do it. For our students, it's really okay if during your class, they really enjoy doing that work. But when the bell rings, they get up and go. Um, that's really okay. And you know that they're interested if you're, when you ask them about the work that they're doing, they're eager to tell you about it, but you know, they're absorbed when you don't have to ask, they come to you and they tell you about it. And there's the difference. And so kids who are interested, students who are interested, that's a really nice place for them to be. But when the bell rings, how do they respond? Right, right. We can always find something. I think sometimes we assume because some aspect of the learning is required that none of it is negotiable and none of it is pliable. And I think if you look closely enough, you'll be able to find if there's a certain, you know, skill that's required, then the content used to develop that skill can be negotiable and students have the opportunity to make choices. I think there's there's opportunities if we look closely enough. Heather, you and I share a, a passion for cooking. Uh, I had a segment on the podcast a few weeks ago called, uh, or last month actually, uh, called If Not Ed, If Not Education, What Career Would You Choose? Mm -hmm. And uh, and and mine was uh, chef. 
Oh, really? Uh, so that yeah. So I I I I talked about that, and a number of different listeners uh, tweeted about the different careers they would have chosen if not education. It wasn't meant to to say you know had I gone in a different path and kind of dump on education. It was more of a fun segment just to say if not Ed's, but but for me it was uh, it was it was a chef. So uh, we share that, uh, and 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 just to be clear, as you say. Uh, just because I love it doesn't necessarily mean I'm good at it and no one should pay me to cook for them. That's for <laughs> sure. But I'm getting better. I'm getting better. And I really like to, I like to try things that are complicated and I like to try to learn those techniques. Okay. Follow wait, up wait, question. wait, no way. Oh, okay. No, no. All right. Go ahead. Okay. And this is one of the things that, because you just said, I like to try complicated things. I may yeah. not be good at it, but I like to do that. Yeah. In schools, we don't create complexity. We create simplicity because we grade kids. And because we grade using averages mostly, the average requires that you are excelling at every attempt. But in reality, the things that we have the highest levels of engagement in are things that we we routinely fail at and learn through that failure. But because there is no grade attached to it, um, we are not demotivated by that failure. In fact, we're motivated by it. Yeah, and yeah. so if somebody were to grade you on the, the thing that you attempted to cook but got wrong, you would probably be disinclined to try it in the first place or go back to it or, you know, give yourself that high bar of complexity. Yeah, it would. I, I suppose it would depend also on whether or not I was given a. You know, if we want to get into the assessment, sort of the reassessment opportunity, and then the dismissing yeah. of old evidence, and yes. there's lots, lots we can do with assessment and grading. As listeners, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast every week. But there are a lot, lots of things we can do to reshape that grading culture to make it more conducive to learning and to ensure that students don't lose that motivation for sure. So here, here is that follow-up question about those experiences I've been having recently. The first was this conflating of compliance and engagement. The second experience I have, no matter where I go, and this has been happening uh, since I got back to traveling in July, uh, throughout the entire fall and now into the winter, uh, no matter where I go, it seems that the message from teachers is very similar place to place. And that is that now that we are sort of back to school full time, face to face, and of course, it depends on where you live on what your face to face experience would be. But now that we are back face to face full time, students seem to be less engaged than ever before as a result of the pandemic. So what advice do you have for teachers who are you know, this is not coming from a cynical place. They are legitimately struggling to rekindle student engagement while the pandemic is is still happening. What's the advice to teachers? So I want to just um, capitalize on this moment of talking about the difference between behavioral engagement and learning engagement. So we often give kids a pass on learning engagement if they're at least compliant with our behavioral expectations. So it's okay to not do the thinking as long as you're quietly not disturbing other people. It's okay for students to look like they're doing school, even if they're not actually having their minds on the learning. Um, and so a lot of what I am hearing and seeing taking place in schools is behaviorally uh, driven as well as um, the learning conversation. And so students' behaviors are really different 
um, after this whole virtual hybrid type of experience that happened um, in the first 18 months of the pandemic. And I think students' school behaviors, because they were out of school for so long, look different now. And um, teachers are really focused on the behaviors and saying these kids are, I don't know, school ready, school appropriate, school whatever, right? And first of all, I think some of this is trauma. And so I want to make sure that um, when we're talking about kids and um, their potential manifestations of what their trauma is looking like for them, um, that we're talking about that in a way that honors that these kids aren't being defiant. They're not being um, uh, overtly trying to be rude or disrespectful. They are living through something that is completely out of their control that has impacted them in ways that we don't even know yet. Um, and so a lot of this is trauma-based. And then the other is that um, a lot of students were home alone especially uh, middle school and up, they were home alone. And so they were these pseudo adults who were making choices without supervision in terms of how to create a learning environment for themselves because their parents went back to work. Um, and so they're accustomed to being in a position where they had a lot more control um, and they're coming to school where they're being treated like they were not responsible before uh, for themselves in some way. And so they want this autonomy and authority. And so I would say, what are ways that you can, you know, tap into a human desire to have a certain sense of ownership? And um, that definitely leads to greater levels of engagement. A kid sitting in a desk or, or you know, uh, being quiet throughout a lesson, if kids are challenged to do that, then give them activities where there's movement and there's, um, there's opportunities for them to speak. I know that sounds obvious, but sometimes we go back to the way that we've always done things and then wonder why it isn't working because it used to work, but the variables have changed. So we need to be adaptive to the variables that are in front of us. Yeah, it's interesting. We, I think we tend to go back to what we're, what's familiar to us. It gives us comfort. This last couple of years has been certainly incredibly disruptive to say the least to everyone in society, including schools. And I think for, for adults, going back to routine and going back to familiarity is, is important, but the rules have changed and students have been affected. And I think you're, your point about trauma is 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 well well taken because I, I think we have to recognize that whatever impact adults have felt through the pandemic, it's magnified for students who don't think like adults, don't have adult brains, they don't rationalize like adults, they don't have as much control that adults have. And so I think being sensitive to that certainly helps us. So let's finish up today with some go-to strategies that you have. Um, you, of course, wrote the book called The Big Book of Engagement Strategies. So 
clearly you have a, a lot of <laughs> strategies at your fingertips there for sure. So yeah. let's talk about getting started. I, you know, let's say I'm a teacher. Um, mm -hmm. I've never really thought too much about, I, I can't imagine this, but this is hypothetical. <laughs> I've never really thought too much about engagement for whatever reason. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to get started. I, I'm, I'm listening to you, Heather, and I'm saying, you know what, I probably do need to be more mindful of, of how I pay attention to engagement. So how would you advise me? If I was so, in that position, I'm going to give uh, three quick strategies here. One to go from non-compliant to compliant, one to go okay. from compliant to interested, and one from interested to absorbed. Perfect. And so uh, the very first strategy that I'm going to share is the very first strategy in engagement is not a unicorn, it's a narwhal. And it's the strategy of using equity sticks. And so it's giving the students a number. Uh, if I'm a secondary student or yeah, teacher, I'm going to give kids numbers. So um, it's not that I'm not going to learn their names, but I'm going to have a jar of popsicle sticks numbered one through whatever, however many kids are in that class. And I'm going to um, pull the stick instead of call on kids raising their hands. If I'm an elementary teacher, I'm going to have the kids names on there because I'm working with the same kids all day. The reason why this works is because I do not want kids to raise their hands in my classroom because what I've done is I've made learning voluntary. I want it to be something where everybody's on the hook. And so this strategy works by you actually ask the question first so that you ensure all students are thinking about what the answer could be. And then you pull the stick after. You also then put the stick back in so every child has um, once, if you take the stick out, that means I now no longer have to participate anymore because my stick is out. Right. Um, so that's the first one that I'll share. Okay. And, let me stop you there. Yeah. So mm -hmm. just a quick, quick follow-up to that. Yes. So if I'm a student, you, you pull my number and I legitimately don't know the answer to the question. Mm -hmm. what, what happens? So I say, um, all right. Um, there are a couple of ways to handle that. One would be pretend you do know an answer. Give me what's the, you know, um, yeah. you don't let them off the hook. You probe their thinking. That's really important for me as a teacher to know, you know, what my kids' uh, logic is. The other is, okay, I'm going to pull in, I'm going to put you back in. Um, I'm going to pull a stick for some somebody else. And so you're back in and you're still on the hook. Or I could say, um, you know, this next kid is going to answer, but you're going to repeat the answer so that way to lock it in. Right. So there are several different ways to approach that. Yeah, the to great paraphrase question. that response. I love that. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's go to the next one. What's, what's okay. the next one? So the next one is also from uh, Engagement is Not a Unicorn, it's a Narwhal. And um, this is the first one from uh, getting to compliant to interested. And this is, I call it earning your pay in the book, but it's really a choice board. And so it's giving kids options as to assignments um, to do the learning. So any of these would work, but um, as the student, I'm giving you the ability to navigate which of these choices you're going to do to demonstrate your learning. So I call this earn your pay because I've awarded point values to these in the book. And so you need to get a certain total um, in order to demonstrate your level of proficiency. I do want to say uh, just quickly the difference between choice and voice. So 
voice is, okay, Tom, it's your birthday. We can go to any restaurant you want to go to. Where would you like to go? And Tom, your voice determines um, where we go. Once we get to that restaurant, the restaurant has a menu of options. That menu of options are the choices. So when I do something like earn your pay, which is a choice board, I always include on there or almost always include on there a voice option. In other words, here are, here are all the choices, this menu of items that I thought of, but the last menu choice is the voice option. Tell me something, propose something to me that you think would demonstrate your learning that might be different than the choices that I've given you. Right. Yeah, I think that's a very important uh, give them the parameters, give them the menu, but there's always an option to uh, just like in a restaurant, you may have an allergy, you may have something there where you have to 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 let the the server know that, you know, in your order, there needs to be some sort of special adjustment. OK, third strategy. OK, the third strategy, and this one comes from the big book of engagement strategies. It's the last strategy um, in the book. Uh, what, one of the things that I loved about writing this book is that I had. I collaborated with uh, many contributors, and so there are definitely strategies in here that I've written and used, but there are also um, 15 educators who contributed to it with over 20 different strategies from them. And the um, last strategy in here um, is called Room to Breathe, um, or R2B. And it's from a pair of teachers in Alberta, so your neighbors. Um, <laughs> and in Room to Breathe, the students um, are, so they call it inhaling and exhaling, these teachers. And um, so an inhale is when students are reading or listening to uh, something. And exhaling is when they are producing something. Mm -hmm. So they're writing it. Um, or speaking it. And so it's um, a really beautiful strategy to help students um, uh, write and read, um, listen and speak for a purpose that is intrinsically motivated by the students. So you like to watch The Office, all right. So what is it that other people might want to know about The Office and how can you do this in a scholarly way? And it's, um, I am, there are a lot of layers to it. So uh, so I, I can't describe it in full detail um, as I'm sitting here, but the, the point here is that it's, it's project-based learning, but it's done so in a way that is authentic to the students and to the standards, um, which I really like. Yeah, wonderful. Um, you know, I, I, there's obviously it's a big book of strategies. It's the engagement is not a unicorn. It's a narwhal. Uh, tons of strategies in their listeners and certainly would encourage you to get one or both of those. So, Heather, we have two questions left as we finish up every interview on the podcast. And uh, there are two questions that I ask everyone uh, who comes on. And the first one uh, is one that you can take in any direction you wish. But the question is, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? I have to say the um, teacher shortage keeps me up at night. Um, I am I am on a committee um, that is called the Pipeline Committee. It's regional, um, and I keep saying to them, and we keep saying to each other, it's 
a regional committee. Like this is not a regional problem. This is not a problem of we don't have enough teachers in Western New York, although we don't. And if you are looking for a job, please come to Western New York. <laughs> we would love to hire you. Um, but this is not a New York problem. This is not an East Coast problem. This is a nationwide problem. And I turn on the TV and I see commercials for like become a nurse. People know about the nursing shortage. I see commercials about, you know, uh, join the military or something like that. But where are the commercials that say become a teacher? Um, and it's a beautiful profession. And I, I definitely understand that we have both what I call a faucet issue and a drain issue. So picture a bathtub trying to fill up with water. So we don't have enough water coming in from the faucet and that's the pipeline. But we also, our drain is too big and we're losing more teachers than, um, than we can in order to provide quality education to kids. Um, and it, it literally keeps me up at night. Um, yeah. and, and a lot of what I see posted about the teacher shortage is a lot of the why it, and it has to do with being a teacher these days is a real challenge. It's you're underpaid, you're underappreciated, you're working around the clock and, you know, lots of, lots of challenges and there's legitimacy to all of them. I am hoping to hear more solutions like, yeah, those are problems. How can we, what can we do about it? You, I think you're spot on when you talk about it's not a regional issue. It's uh, it's an everywhere issue for sure. And, um, you know, there was that little glimmer. If there was a silver lining to the pandemic, uh, it was that little glimmer in the spring and maybe the fall of 2020 where there was an appreciation for the rigors of the job and, and appreciation from society. And, and, and not that we are martyrs or anything like that, but certainly educators, we still have a long way to go uh, in society to appreciate uh, the full breadth and depth of what it means to be a teacher, for sure. Uh, last question as we finish up, Heather, uh, is about just a broad question about success. It's again, the question I ask everyone, uh, and it's pretty simple. If a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, Heather, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? I'd say, why are you coming up to me, random person on the street? <laughs> Such a strange That's encounter. Not part of the question, <laughs> no, <Heather>. I'm teasing. <laughs> All right. Um, no, I would say. Uh, who are you? Why are you approaching I know, right? me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. um, for me, success is about being in a place where you have the ability to make choices that lead to making your life better and happier, however you define that. I think there's some level of having some resources to do that. Um, but you, I am fortunate enough to be at a place in my life where like, I have the ability to make choices about where I want to work, what car I want to drive, you know, where I want to live, um, how many children I want to have. Um, and, and I really am grateful to have resources to be able to do that. But more importantly, I think success is about driving happiness and satisfaction from those choices that I'm, that I'm making. Like, I live a really charmed life. 
that doesn't mean like I have a vacation home and a yacht. Um, but I have people who I love and love me back and we don't have to worry about whether or not the heat's going to work or, you know, the food, um, that we'll have. And you can be successful and happy and hungry at the same time. Um, but I think there's, um, there's some level of cognitive load that is lightened when you have resources that are able to um, free you from thinking about, will I be able to eat to what will I eat? Right, right, right. Resources and and choices certainly, uh, I, I suppose, give us that feeling that we have been been successful in, in so many ways, for sure. And and the recognition that not not everyone necessarily has those choices and those options, but certainly that makes us feel as if we have been successful. Listeners, uh, you definitely should follow Heather on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is the same. The handle is at Lion's Letters. So there's an S in there, even though Heather's last name is Lion. It's L-Y-O-N-S-L-E-T-T-E-R-S. You can also follow Heather on LinkedIn. Uh, and also, Heather mentioned this earlier, the uh, website, uh, www.lionsletters.com. There's lots of great information on that website, including how to connect with Heather more should you be in search of further support with student engagement and, and want to talk more with Heather about some opportunities maybe to work with you or to work with uh, your school or school district. Heather, this was a great conversation, certainly a topic that is timely and relevant. Uh, engagement is always something that teachers have been uh, you know, wrestling with and trying to figure out, and you clearly have have uh, articulated some great strategies for us. So many great ideas. Uh, Heather, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to revisit formative assessment and just remind you of why it is essential to effective instruction. Assessment is the engine that drives learning. Now, only those with a very narrow definition of assessment, you know, the idea that assessment only means testing, only those with a very narrow definition of assessment would misunderstand this. Now, many of you have heard me talk about the idea of being instructionally agile, but I want to take a slightly different angle and talk about instructional efficiency. Using assessment evidence for the formative purpose creates efficiency with the distribution of your instructional minutes. Every teacher I know is busy. So busy is not a reason and not an excuse. So if everyone is busy, why are some more effective than others? Well, the answer is found in what they do with their time. I know some situations are acutely different than others. I get that. But if you look at it across a broad sort of scale, the differentiator is how the instructional minutes are used. Now, the one I hear frequently is, I don't hear this all the time, but I hear it frequently enough, is, Tom, I don't have enough time for formative assessment. I'm too busy teaching as I have too many standards to cover. Now, that is some kind of irony. Now, the first thing I infer, and I think I'm accurately inferring this, when somebody says that, is that they likely think of formative assessment as a thing. It's, you know, the idea of a summative that doesn't count. So in their mind, when you say formative assessment, they think of trying to squeeze one more thing into a space that doesn't exist. And I have found that an effective question to ask educators in sort of those conversations is to ask them that in the middle of a lesson, or even at the end of the lesson. How do you know the students learned what you intended for them to learn? The only way you're going to know this 
is if you gather information about their new or their current understanding of the concepts at hand. And again, the word gather doesn't have to be tangible. It's just gaining access to that information, gathering information. Well, that's exactly what the definition of assessment is, gathering information about student learning. So formative is much more than a summative that doesn't count. Every single thing the students do has the potential to inform you about where they are along their learning continuum. The irony of the I don't have time assertion is that what they're really saying is I don't have time to utilize one of the most effective and impactful of teaching strategies because I'm too busy teaching. That sounds a bit silly when you put it like that, doesn't it? Now I'm not disrespecting those who say it because if you don't know, you don't know. So it's up to the rest of us to continue to message in a way that helps others understand that everything is evidence. Small group discussions. You know, you can hear the misunderstandings, the understandings, gauge where they are, both individually and as the collective. Nonverbal cues, body language, right? Facial expressions, paralinguistic patterns, tone, etc. Answers to questions, obviously, in various formats, quick hinge questions in the middle of a lesson, exit tickets, gaining access to the information about where they are in their learning. By taking inventory, it allows us to know how to intervene. Without this formative evidence, you will undoubtedly overteach aspects. At some point, you'll overteach aspects the students already understand and therefore likely not have enough time for that which the students need more time for. Using assessments formatively on a day-to-day or even minute-by-minute basis, as Dylan William often asserts, allows for immediate interventions, corrections, and or redirections. Like Rather than waiting for a poor or a less-than-ideal result on a more formal assessment days later, you can know now where the students are strong and what needs strengthening and where to intervene and what comes next for them. We know effective feedback is how we raise achievement. What gives us the opportunity to provide that feedback is, you guessed it, gathering information about the student's current status. I've found myself in recent weeks continually coming back to this point. If we look at what coaches do, or dance teachers, or music teachers, they are constantly observing, therefore assessing their players, their dancers, their musicians. And they're thinking through the potential differences between what they just observed and the ideal level of performance or the targeted performance. The feedback is immediate and nothing is ever really quantified. That is the real power of formative assessment. Now there's nothing wrong with a more formal formative event at certain strategic moments. This is often where common formative assessments are most helpful for the collaborative team. Those conversations about the collective next steps for our learners. No one has all of the answers on their own. No one. So these collaborative team conversations are vital to ensure all learners reach their potential. So assessment for me sort of sits like a pyramid in that the bottom of the pyramid, which is the widest, indicating this is what we would do most frequently, are those day-to-day informal formative moments. The middle kind of narrows, which means we do this a little less might be your more formal, maybe common, formative assessments at these pivotal moments. And then the top, which of course is the narrowest, which indicates we would do this much less, are those periodic summative moments that verify the degree to which students have met the learning goals. Now I know, I know some people are going to say, oh Tom, learning is never final. And yes, we know 
in the abstract, learning is never final. But can we stop pretending like there aren't end of semesters and and end of quarters and end of grading periods that are part of the reality of what schools uh, have created and, and, and the need to report to other people? Right. Summative assessment is really about reporting to families and other stakeholders. And we can't pretend that that's not an important aspect of the job. It, it is really kind of ridiculous to to say otherwise. And also, even, you know, summative assessment doesn't necessarily even have to be a thing. Remember, I talked about this in November. Summative, as well, can be a moment in time where the teacher examines the preponderance of evidence to determine the student's overall depth of understanding. And even better, meaning more valid and reliable, is when that decision about proficiency is on, on a scale that involves fewer, more clearly described levels of quality. Okay, but back to the point about formative assessment. I want you to keep the word using instead of doing in mind as you think about formative assessment. Then you'll start to create real utility around the effort. It's not about squeezing it in. It's about actually making room, intentionally making room for something essential to maximizing student achievement. If you're going to not do something, then honestly pick something else besides formative assessment strategies. Seriously, pick something else. You can't know for sure whether any instructional strategies were effective unless you ask your students and listen to your students and observe your students. Formative assessment strategies create instructional efficiency, which is how you will end up being able to know what comes next for each and every learner. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Also, you can email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for the podcast, feedback for me, questions for Assessment Corner. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming Grading from the Inside Out and Standards-Based Learning and Action trainings that are coming this spring. Next week, my guest will be none other than Dr. Susan Brookhart. Sue, of course, is a giant in the realm of assessment research. So I'm going to get her perspective on a breadth of assessment topics next week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. But of course, you can do that on Spotify now. So any rating wherever you listen to the podcast would be most appreciated. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.